back to a special edition of Skeptics and Seekers. Uh, uh, today is a special day. We're going to be uh, doing a, a bonus supplemental uh, for my Shroud series uh, to do an interview with uh, someone uh, that I consider a, a friend has been helpful to me in my uh, search. Uh, um, it's the uh, world-renowned, uh, he was the Sturt, official Sturt photographer and a world-renowned Shroud expert. Uh, Barry Schwartz. Uh, so welcome to the show, Barry. Thanks for having me, Dale. You're welcome. And joining me uh, is our my co-host as the Shroud Skeptic, the evil bad guy of the slot. Uh, uh, Andrew, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, yes, hi, this is Andrew Knight, and I'm looking forward to uh, I'm looking forward to this podcast as the evil skeptic. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Um, so yeah, we, we've got a series of questions. So, some of them are, um, you know, multiple multiple aspects, or there's some follow ups. Um, I've tried my best to look at some of the feedback um, and what's most important to our listening audience. So uh, you'll see some of those questions uh, come up. It's, it's worked into the list that I've come up with. Um, but yeah, I guess. What we'll do is we'll get straight into it. Uh, starting, Andrew will ask the odd questions, and I'll ask the even ones in general. So, so Andrew, I'll turn it over to you to ask the first question. Okay. So, the shroud is an interesting topic in general, and probably the right place to start is to point out that uh, this is the 40th anniversary of the STURP project. And Barry, I think you were one of two photographers originally associated with the project, and. So if you could give us a little background there, I think that's the, the best place to start. Sure. In uh, 1976, I was approached, uh, I had completed a consulting, photographic consulting project for Los Alamos National Laboratories. And the gentleman I'd worked with happened to be uh, over at Sandia Labs on the day that a photograph of the shroud was placed in a device called a VP8 image analyzer which was being used over at Sandia Labs for evaluation of x-rays, had nothing to do with NASA or the moon, as some have reported. Um, they asked me if I, uh, when I finished that project, the gentleman called me back, asked me what I knew about the Shroud of Turin, and I kind of laughed, and I said, but Don, I'm Jewish. And Don, the man who had, I had worked with on the atomic bomb project, called me, uh, laughed and said, look, I'm, I'm Jewish too. So uh, Don... Devan, the man who brought me on board, uh, was the guy who kind of got me hooked on this. He was an imaging scientist. Um, when they first asked me if I wanted to be on the team to examine the Shroud of Turin, I said no. I had no interest in it, and I felt, well, I'm Jewish, and this has nothing to do with me, and I don't want to get involved. But they did describe to me one of the properties of the image where depth information is encoded into the lights and darks of the image, and I knew I couldn't do that photographically, so that caught my interest. From a purely scientific point of view, I was very curious how an image with that kind of topographical information encoded into the density of the image itself, how that could even occur, and so I kind of grudgingly said yes, and I agreed to be on the team, but I have to be candid, I know there's people listening here, but I have to be candid and say I was really thinking free trip to Italy. Anyway, I joined the team and was totally skeptical and stayed a skeptic throughout our examination of the crowd, although I have to admit within the first 10 or 15 minutes, 
and direct examination of the cloth that I was able to do with a high-powered magnifier, that there's no evidence of any paint or pigment or binders, the kind of things one would find on an artwork. None of that existed on the shroud, and I knew that in about the first 15 or 20 minutes of our five-day examination of the cloth. Excellent. And just one little follow-up. Uh, like, uh, you mentioned that you were a skeptic to us for about 17 years. I've mentioned this in my podcast, you know, about 17 years after the fact. Um, what, what's, uh, what's been your involvement with the Shroud after participating in STIRP? Uh, if you want to, you know, mention stuff about your sure. website and that, yeah. Sure. No, for many years, uh, of course, I was skeptic and I still maintained and licensed the photographs to publications or books or television documentaries. Uh, because I photographed, I was a documenting photo photographer, so I, I photographed the team at work, which of course is what's visually interesting, is seeing the men actually doing their thing. Um, so I, I worked uh, and did that kind of work for a while. Um, it wasn't until 1995 when I finally became convinced by the scientific evidence and not by any religious or theological point of view that this is most likely the real thing. And it was then that I realized that the general public was having to get their information from very weak sources like the National Enquirer. And at that point in time, I just felt obligated because I was privileged to have all the photography and all the other information from all those years of our team. I decided I would build a website and I built shroud.com, which went online January 21st, 1996. People nowadays make a big deal about us being number one on Google, and I always have to point out that we're a year older than Google. So <laughs> we've been there a while. Yeah. And, uh, been in the this game. year we'll, we'll get about a million and a half visitors this year. Excellent. Yeah, and I, I have to admit that um, during my own research, Barry's website is by far the best website out there. It, it's got everything. You know, it's got pictures. It's got updates, um, you know, both scholarly and popular level articles from pro and con sides. It's it's not all just from one perspective. It's It's got everything up there, you know, conferences or, or book recommendations. It, you, honestly, you name it, and Barry's got it up there for, for you, uh, whatever perspective you're coming at it from. So, so, yeah, kudos to you for for making that website there. Thank you. No problem. So, so yeah, I'll move on to our next um question. So this is going back again because it is the 40th anniversary of STIR. Right. Um, I've I've got a lot of flack and I've tried to, you know, I've provided sources and that sort of thing, but the, there have been a lot of shroud skeptics who are just skeptical of the STIRP scientists and approaching it from a pro-shroud side. They, they seem to just dismiss everything. They'll say, well, yes, yeah, Sterp, all the all those scientists and all those experts that you're quote, you know, you're using to present your case for the shroud, that, that they're just a bunch of religious fanatics. That they're <laughs> practicing pseudoscience. Uh, no one, you know, everyone within the wider scientific community at large, they reject this as garbage. Um, so yeah, I, I wanted to give you your fair, you are a part of STIRP. I want to give you yes. your fair share to, to respond to this claim. Well, I, I can first let me be brief and say that's total nonsense. Secondly, let me point out who these men were that were on this team. 
a, a large group of our team members were scientists at Los Alamos National Laboratory. Another group of them were from Sandia Laboratories, a sister lab to Los Alamos, and also a weapons laboratory. And two of our team members were from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. One of them was head of imaging on the Voyager Viking Mariner and Galileo probes for NASA. So to claim these guys are a bunch of religious fanatics or pseudoscientists is laughable because, look, our government doesn't put guys to work at Los Alamos or Sandia or Jet Propulsion Lab if they're weirdos or religious fanatics or things in that uh, of that caliber. Uh, these were hardcore scientists. I learned more about science from being a member of this team than on all the courses I took in college and anywhere else before that. And that's because these men were empirical. They followed the data. They were scientists to the core. And look, a bunch of these guys were old timers that were hardcore old grizzled scientists that were Man, if you didn't follow the scientific method, they were yelling at you. So to claim that they were a bunch of religious fanatics, I have to point out three of the guys were Jewish, including myself, Dr. Alan Adler, a world-renowned blood chemist, now deceased, and Don Devan, the man that brought me on board. Um, there were three Jews. There were a couple of Catholics. There were some Protestants. There was uh, one evangelical, uh, and people have criticized me for not publishing on the website the religious affiliations of the team members. Well, I would first have to know the religious affiliations. Our religious background had nothing to do with our being accepted as a member of the team. The team members were selected specifically for their skill sets in fulfilling the requirements of the test plan to do non-destructive science on a piece of cloth. It had nothing to do with religion. In fact, if religion had been an object brought up by the organizers uh, and faith had to be one of the prerequisites, I would say that 95% of the guys who were on that team would never have joined. This was not about religion. This was about science. And as a, a witness to this, one of the few left standing, unfortunately, I can assure you that it's not true. These were not a bunch of religious guys. Religion was never brought up, period. Yeah. And, and just before I turn it over to Andrew for your follow up question, um, just to back up, Barry, I mean, I'm going to be, you know, when I do my podcast on the Shroud, I provide detailed sources for people, anyone that's interested to check out. Um, I know that we've had um, a lot, many people be interested and actually click on and, and that sort of thing. Um, but Barry has links on his website that I'm going to provide uh, showing STIRP's operational plan. It's 62 pages um, showing the the members, you know, who, who are these people that were involved. Plus, just recently, and I was happy to see that three of our listeners actually clicked onto this. Um, with the uh, peer-reviewed literature, now they're freely available, and people have actually taken advantage of that. So, so yeah, I, I would say I would just back up Barry and you know just try to research a little into who these people are before you dismiss them as as religious fanatics or practicing pseudoscience and that sort of thing. So, so yeah, Andrew, I'll turn it over to you for your follow-up on this particular question. This will only take a moment, and I don't I don't guess it's really a question. For you, Barry, though I'm certainly willing to, to hear anything you've got to say about it, but I think we'll agree here. I don't think the issue at hand should be some sort of impugning of the people involved in the study. 
whether they were good scientists or not good scientists, though I'm willing to accept uh, on its face for this conversation that they were all impeccable scientists. Surely the, the issue that should remain on the table is how we qualify what good science is. So between us, there's, uh, I, don't, I don't think we want to create some sort of ad hominem environment where we're, where we're questioning the integrity of the people doing the research. What we always want to question is whether the science was good and how we know that science is good. And so I hope that we can set aside for the balance of the conversation, you know, any, any taint of impugning motives and just talk about uh, how we reach the conclusions we reach and whether it is reasonable to still be skeptical uh, about the science that we're going to continue discussing. Well, I think, first of all, let me say that it's perfectly acceptable to be skeptical. I don't have any problem with that. As I said, for many years, I was totally skeptical myself. So I totally understand that, and I don't hold that against somebody to be skeptical about something that, you know, could have far-reaching re uh, implications on somebody's uh, personal point of view. So I, I don't sure. have a problem with that. I just, I, I can just say this, that uh, you have to look at the credentials of the people who were involved, look at the other peer review work that they did, 50, 60, 100 papers published in hardcore peer reviewed literature. You know, today we have all these online journals that basically the only review they give is your check. And if your check clears, you're published. Back in the days when we were publishing our work, if any bit of our data leaked into the popular press, the journals would refuse to publish our work. So there was a completely different standard of peer review back in the 70s than what we have today with all these open access journals and the fact that you pay your money, they publish your work. That was not the case in 78. So if you look sure. at the, the, the journals that our work appeared in, to this day they have amongst the highest impact factors of any journals out there. Well, so... I've, I'll have to just circle back to what we consider good science and say that the fact that someone has been peer-reviewed doesn't mean that everything they ever write is, is good science. So I'm, I'm happy to acknowledge that these guys are well-published, but just being published doesn't make your science good science. Okay. And so and the, the question I, will still be, how do we know what good science is, right? Not just that somebody got published, but what is the meaningful, uh, what, what is the meaning of that publication in regard to the specific topic? So my background is computer science. If I were published in, in a, you know, some computer science journal, um, I might submit another article at some point um, that wasn't worthy of publication. And so it doesn't mean that a good scientist can't do bad science. Oh, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't argue that point. I agree. No, look, there's plenty of bad science out there on both sides of the authenticity issue uh, sure. even to this day. So I, I totally agree with you, Andrew. I, I don't disagree at all. Uh, the only concern I have is, and, and this is why 
on October 8th, which commemorated the first day of our examination 40 years ago, we updated Shroud.com and all of the peer-reviewed first 20 papers published by the STIRP team are now readily available for anyone to look at and read themselves. And you can evaluate it and decide if it's good or bad science. Well, I uh, think that's thing- fantastic. That's yeah, the great. other thing is the the test plan, the 62-page test plan that Dale mentioned. That test plan was what got us permission to examine the shroud. It was so thorough and broken down. You, you owe it to yourself, even if you don't want to read it. Some of it's very technical. Take a look at it and see the thoroughness, the 17 months that went into developing that test plan. We didn't just rush over there with a bunch of instruments and start you know, collecting data. We spent 17 months designing the experiments, developing the technology necessary in some cases to examine that piece of cloth and do everything in a non-destructive manner. So I strongly urge people to take a look at the test plan, if not to see the details, but to see the thoroughness of that plan, and then look at the peer-reviewed papers that came from that and decide for yourself. That's why they're published. Sure. Perfect. Okay, so so Andrew, uh, yeah, I think that's a good point, and I think with that we can move on to the next question, and this is uh, getting into questions related to the dating or the the authenticity of the shroud. We've had a lot of um, right shroud right. Uh, proponents for that, and it, it's uh, related to the carbon fourteen dating, uh, which some skeptics have des- described as this is the slam dunk proof. It, it's obviously a fake. Uh, so with that, I'll turn it over to Andrew to to ask this question. So I'm not sure that I have much more to add to that question, except, you know, we could we could read it right from the page. But it is uh, it is worth pointing out that there's some skepticism about the carbon-14 dating around the shroud and whether it can have a uh, middle date uh, that can somehow be confused with the early date for uh, for authenticity. So. Barry, in regard to whether we can be certain from some sort of radiometric dating technique about uh, a first century date for the shroud versus a, a 14th century date, what are your thoughts there? Well, okay, uh, we have to go back and take a look at what was done in 1988 when they collected a single sample to uh, be used for radiocarbon dating. Uh, they spent an hour and a half standing over the shroud and arguing as to where to take their sample. And this brings me back to that test plan that we had with every little move that we had to make calculated, written down, and put into a plan so we wouldn't miss something. The carbon dating selected one sample from one corner of that piece of cloth uh, right next to a seam and not far from a water stain and a scorch mark where there had been obvious burns. And I don't know... uh, if you've ever spoken to scientists, I've spoken to a lot of them over the years, and they have claimed a 95% certainty on the radiocarbon date achieved in 88, but it was only based on a single sample, not even a second sample from somewhere else as a reference or a control sample. And so that date that they achieved was correct. I'm not disputing the carbon dating result, In 1988, the only thing I'm disputing is the selection of the sample itself and the fact that only one sample was selected. It turns out for the about 12 years after the carbon dating, probably 20 different theories were proposed 
evaluated and rejected as to what went wrong, in quotes, with the carbon dating. Um, nothing went wrong with the carbon dating, but no one thought about the fact that the sample site that was chosen had actually come from an area that had been repaired in medieval times, and there are two peer-reviewed journaled articles in the scientific literature and very highly credible journals that show the data that proves that that sample site was not a valid site to use for the um, carbon dating of the shroud. And so those papers are also available on shroud.com, and you might want to read that to see why those uh, original carbon dating dates were being challenged in the peer-reviewed scientific literature. They're being challenged because the data was based on a flawed sample, and the chemistry and physics have been done on that sample to show that there was an anomaly there, that cotton had been interwoven with the uh, linen. And by the way, that's forbidden by Jewish law for a burial shroud. It's called mixing of the kinds. And those of you who might have some uh, theological background might know about that, that no cotton or wool could be interwoven with the linen. It says in the Torah, it must be pure, clean linen without any corruption of cotton or wool. We found cotton interwoven in that section of the shroud that was carbon dated but nowhere else on the cloth. So there's strong evidence that there was a repair done there, not the typical repair with a big patch overlaid like the sisters did in 1534 after the fire, but a reweaving. And uh, when this was first proposed, people just kind of laughed and said, well, there is no such thing as French invisible reweaving. But I happen to have on my bookshelf a book called uh, French Invisible Reweaving, uh, uh, Saving a Dying Art Form, that was published in the 50s. And this was something perfected by the French court for repairing tapestries that were basically imaged on both sides. So the repairs had to be perfect on both sides of the cloth. And that was a technique applied, obviously, to the shroud. So in my opinion, that is the biggest reason why the radiocarbon dating, which only used a single sample site, can't be considered valid. Now, there's some other things that you might want to know about. The fact that there were three radiocarbon dating labs, Arizona, uh, Switzerland, and uh, Oxford in England. Uh, the uh, Turin authorities assigned uh, Dr. Michael Tight of the British Museum, the chief researcher at the British Museum, a very high-powered researcher and scholar. They assigned him to be the overseer of the three laboratories that did the dating. Ironically, as soon as the results were published and uh, the headlines came out that the shroud is a fake, the Oxford lab received one million pounds sterling anonymously for debunking the shroud, and Dr. Michael Tite left the British Museum and took a permanent chair at Oxford. How does that smell? Yeah. That well, so again, I think I won't sit in judgment uh, over motive because I don't know any of the players involved. What I will say is one of the things that is critical to the scientific method is repeatability. And so without getting into motive over who was involved and who did what to who, what we're, what we're angling at is how we know whether good science is done. If I recall uh, the 
dimensions of the shroud properly, I think it's uh, something like 14 feet long and three and a half feet wide. Is that, is that close? 14, yeah, 14 and a half by about three and a half. Okay, fair enough. So it seems to me that we can put a lot of these questions to rest simply through repeating the experiments. Absolutely. That's one of the tenets of science. The basic tenets of science is repeatability. That's why we publish our work in, pub, in, in public journals and uh, list all of our uh, techniques and technologies that we use and the methodologies that we use so that when other scientists read it, they, if they opt to disagree, they can follow what was done and try and repeat the experiment. That's how science works. Absolutely. And in order to repeat these experiments, and, and I think with 40 years of further, uh, further scientific advance, we could put a lot of these questions to rest with a new piece of cloth taken from a better site and perform the experiments again. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, unfortunately, you have to remember that radiocarbon dating, even though now the sample sizes are much smaller than even uh, they were 30 years ago when the carbon dating was done, uh, right. it's, it's still destructive. They still have to destroy the samples. So, yes. you know, the, the owner of the shroud, who's the living pope, by the way, not the church as an institution, but the living pope, um, he has to authorize that. And these days, he's got a few other things going on his plate that might be a little more critical. The shroud is safe and sound in Turin better preserved than it's ever been in a special cabinet, unrolled, laid flat, light tight, nit nitrogen argon atmosphere, temperature and humidity controlled by computers. So the shroud is best preserved than it's ever been in its entire history. And so there's no pressing need on the part of the Pope. And here I am a Jew speaking for the Pope, but I don't see I'm that. sure he'll appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, well, you know, uh, what can I say? Uh, but but I don't, you know, I just don't, uh, I see that uh, the Pope is focusing his attention elsewhere and he's the only one who can authorize another test. And trust me, that everybody, including the folks in Turin, would like to see some of these issues put to rest by allowing another set of tests, not just a radiocarbon dating test. Understand that in 1984, after STIRP finished their initial uh, set of tests, uh, we prepared a second STIRP-2 with 26 different experiments, including radiocarbon dating as number 26, but those first 25 experiments that we wanted to do were in part to answer questions that were raised by the data we collected in 78 and to further our knowledge of the shroud. Because, you know, we came back with a lot more questions than answers when we came back with all that data. And we spent, what, 40 years evaluating it. It would be nice to go back, apply 21st century technology. We can do things now that weren't even dreamed of back then, uh, right. which would minimize the impact on the cloth keep everything non-destructive and, you know, minimally invasive, if you will. And we have the technology to do it. So I don't think anybody on either side of the authenticity issue argues against the idea of doing further tests. We would all like to see that done on both sides of the issue. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's the reason I've tried to get these papers published. I had to deal with copyright issues. But considering that we're a nonprofit, we don't charge any money. There's no advertising on the website. 
publishing those papers, I felt fell within the fair usage of the copyright law. And look, if any uh, of the authors decides they'd rather not have their work up on the website, all they have to do is ask us in writing, we'll remove it. That's the rules of the internet. So uh, as far as we're concerned, the evidence is there. It's not been available until just recently. I understand that. And it's been one of my biggest frustrations. But under the circumstances, I felt it was now safe for me to go ahead and commit stare to publishing these uh, papers so that people can see the real science, not some of the pseudoscience that I agree with you has been done in recent years, lots of it on both sides of the authenticity issue. And people really need to see the real science, the quality science that was done by direct examination of the cloth by data taken directly off that cloth by our instruments. And look, no matter what your religious faith might be, when you point a, strep a spectral instrument at a piece of cloth, that instrument doesn't care if you're a Jew, a Christian, or an atheist, it's gonna take a reading. And it doesn't matter what your uh, personal beliefs are, the data is the data. And that is the data that's published so everybody can look at it. Excellent. Dale, can I have can I have sixty more seconds there? This is not okay, just, a uh, just sixty. This more. is not a debate follow up. Um, oh, this is okay. this is a loud agreement. So yes, I agree, Barry. That uh, instrumentation doesn't care about a person's belief system, and you know maybe the Pope has a lot on his plate. I certainly agree that he's in the news a lot lately, but it seems to me that there could be no better way to change the news headlines than to go back after this science and let it be done again. So okay. if we do agree in, in one place, it's that science is about repeatability. Absolutely. And let's do that right hey, now. Look, I'm right there with you. I'm all for it. Uh, listen, I can't, I have no influence over the Pope that I'm aware of at least. Um, right. <laughs> and so, uh, we all feel the same way. I've discussed this with the folks in Turin. I am on their scientific advisory committee in Turin. So I have access to the sort of horse's mouth, if you will. They would love to see another set of testing done. They would love to see another radiocarbon dating done. But they have no say in the matter, just like I have no say in the matter. Uh, and that's really up to the owner of the shroud. And I just and look, I'm, I'm going to give you an opinion now based on 42 years of observing this subject matter. And that is perhaps and again, I'm putting perhaps in front of it. Perhaps it serves the church's purpose best to remain a mystery. So I'll stay out of that because I promised Dale only yes. 60 seconds. Andrew, you're doing a great job because that's, that's, that's the thing. You're going above and beyond what I thought you would. You're providing some sort of pushback. And I think our skeptical listeners will really appreciate hearing what, how Barry comes back on that stuff. So I, I actually appreciate that you're providing some sort of challenge so it doesn't look like I'm you know, rigging the system or, you know, I've been accused of making straw man arguments that they, they can see it's a real issue. You've got real concerns and, and Barry's responding. So this is this is great. Um, yeah, I appreciate the open format. So yeah. yeah worries, hope. Excellent. So so yeah, I, I think um, just to clarify, so I'm going to ask one follow up, but just to clarify for, for the audience. Uh, so Barry, Barry and I have uh, a disagreement here. He, he's going for if you remember the proposals, I, I gave about four different proposals 
that might explain the carbon 14 in, in my part one podcast. So what Barry's going for, he's going for the invisible reweave hypothesis that, that Ray Rogers uh, went for. So, so just so you understand the context, that that's how he, that's his uh, preferred method of explaining it. And, and Dan, let me quickly point out that at this moment that that is the only theory about the carbon dating that has been submitted to and published in credible peer-reviewed journals with high impact factors, real credible journals. So the way I see it, what I choose to put on shroud.com has to have some credibility scientifically. And if something's appeared particularly in a high-end journal, I cannot ignore that. Remember, there's one paper in the scientific literature that says the shroud is a fake. There are now two papers in the scientific literature that challenge that by saying that the sample tested did not represent the main body of the shroud cloth. You know, there's something called Occam's razor that the simplest answer is generally the correct one. And with all the nonsense that went down for 12 years after the carbon dating of what went wrong, uh, nobody thought about the fact that only one sample was chosen and that that sample wasn't necessarily representative of the main body of the cloth. We now have a couple of peer-reviewed papers that say that and show the evidence for that. And so I have to stick with that one. There may be other theories. And look, I'm perfectly content to set that whole thing aside if somebody comes up with new data that shows that Rogers and Benford and Marino and those folks were all wrong and uh, that there's a different answer to the question, hey, I'll be the very first to st uh, stand up and say, okay, we have new data now. So you yeah. have to follow the data, and right now the data shows that that sample site was anomalous. Excellent. Okay. Uh, so one last just sort of follow-up uh, on this carbon-14. And this is um, – so I, I've mentioned that some, some pro-shroud uh, proponents have referenced uh, carbon-14 results that place the shroud – back to the first century. And now I, I've been careful to mention that these are unreliable. You shouldn't, just like you shouldn't use the 1988 results, you shouldn't use these either. Um, but, you know, I think they placed it to 30 AD and, and 70 AD and one was 200 AD. Uh, so I was, I was just wondering if you wanted to give us sort of a, a follow-up on that, if that's... Sure. If that, uh, yeah, yeah I, I know the researcher who's uh, done that. Um, he did a dating using two off-the-shelf techniques, uh, FTIR, and I don't recall the second one, uh, Fourier transform infrared spectroscopy, that's FTIR. Um, he used that, oh, and a mechanical stress test. He, he put stress on a fiber from the shroud until it broke and measured that and said, based on those two tests, that the shroud was those earlier ages that you mentioned. Unfortunately, nobody's ever used those two techniques to age date any archaeological specimens in the history of science. So we cannot look at those as reliable because those techniques have never been proven to be uh, reliable for age dating an archaeological specimen. So I am totally agreeing again that there's plenty of bad science on the pro-authenticity shroud. And frankly, I consider those tests in that category. Excellent. Okay, so so yeah, um, our, our uh, next question then, and this is again uh, on the dating issue, but not carbon-14. So um, one thing that skeptics have brought up is uh, something I'm sure you're familiar with, is the uh, memo from Bishop Darcis. In yeah, 13th. the Darcy Memorandum. Yep. Um, so yeah, that, that's my my question. That do, do you think this is good evidence that proves the Shroud is medieval, or you know why or why not? 
No, um, I, I, I think that uh, the historians out there that have delved into this far better than I'm, I'm no great guy at history, so I'm, I'm kind of saying that right up front. Uh, the Darcy Memorandum, uh, the only thing that was ever found was a copy, unsigned, written by uh, Bishop, who was very angry that, they, that the uh, Savoy family or the predecessors of the Savoy family that owned the Shroud then, uh, the Dishonets, uh, that they uh, used the Shroud as a fundraising effort and displayed it in their church, and they didn't kick anything down to the bishop. So the bishop wasn't very happy. There are no signed copies of the letter uh, have ever been found. None have been found in the Vatican archives, so it's unlikely that that was ever really sent to the Pope, as was claimed. So that memorandum does not withstand scrutiny, just like some of the science we've talked about that doesn't withstand scientific scrutiny. The historians have looked at that and said, hey, that there's just not enough validity there to say that that memorandum ever reached the Pope, as is claimed by some of the skeptics. So the Darcy Memorandum's been out there. The real historians in the Shroud world have disassembled that and shown that it's not valid. But, you know, people, you got to hang up on something. And I think certain people... Uh, uh, hang up on both that and uh, Walter McCrone. Nobody's mentioned Walter McCrone yet, so I will. He's Walter McCrone, <laughs> was he coming up on the list? He is, yeah, but go ahead. No, you're allowed to Well, I was just going to say, look, Walter McCrone uh, was a well-known microscopist, uh, high, highly regarded. Uh, unfortunately, he uh, sort of staked his career on two major things. One was the uh, the Vinland map that Yale University purchased, he claimed that was a fake, and the Shroud of Turin, which he also claimed was a fake. Uh, Walter never saw the Shroud. He was not a member of the Sterp team, as he never clarified. He never saw the Shroud. All he received were some tape samples lifted from the surface of the cloth by Ray Rogers during our examination. He took those samples, found a few particles of pigment on them, and said, that's it, the shroud's a fake, I found pigment. The problem is there are 52 documented occasions in writing, documented, that artists were permitted to make a copy of the shroud. The Savoy family allowed that. They then laid that copy onto the shroud to sanctify it. That copy was made of red iron oxide particles. Some of them transferred onto the cloth. We found them in our science with our spectral instruments. They were scattered evenly across the entire surface of the shroud, no more so in an image area than in a non-image area. And if you took all the red iron oxide particles on the shroud and put them in one pile, you would still need a microscope to see it. That's how little there is on that cloth. So Walter McCrone, uh, look, Walter had an agenda. Walter used his eyeballs and a white light microscope and a polarized light microscope and he made all his claims based simply on visual observation. Well, I don't know about you, but my eyes are not a spectral instrument, and I can't tell the chemical composition of something by looking at it. Walter did that. And you can look. His work was never published in a peer-reviewed journal. It was published in The Microscope, a journal that he owned and edited. That'd be like me putting something on Shroud.com and calling it peer-reviewed. It's not. If I write something on Shroud.com, that's my, my point of view, my opinion. So Walter basically um, decided that he was going to take the opposing point that Sterp took, and, I, and I'll tell you why. When Sterp submitted their test plan to the king, who owned the Shroud at the time, King Umberto II, Walter submitted his own pet test plan surreptitiously around us, 
and it was rejected and ours was accepted. From that day forward, whatever Stirp said, I think Walter decided he was going to take the opposing point of view. And if we'd come back saying the shroud was a fake, I would bet Walter would have said, no, no, it's real. So I think Walter wanted to distinguish himself and separate himself from the Stirp group, which he was not a member of. And uh, and I think that so he made his claims. He didn't back them up with science. And you can find on Shroud.com one of um, uh, Macron's supporters wrote me a kind of a nasty letter, which I published on Shroud.com with a response. And you can find that on the website. And you can see how I addressed Walter Macron's point of view by pointing out the fact that Walter never even saw the Shroud. So to put a lot of weight on his observations under a microscope when we had spectral instruments pointing directly at the cloth and taking data directly from the cloth, that's a whole different animal. We did science. Walter did not, in this case, do real science on the shroud. Excellent. All right. Yeah, I think that, that says all. These are some points that I, I myself have brought up when I, when I uh, in part seven and eight for, for listeners, when I was addressing Macron's um, the painting hypothesis. So, you know, you're, you're getting it straight from the horse's mouth. You don't, you don't have to believe me here. Um, but yeah, I, I think I'm happy with that. Uh, Andrew, did you want to move on to number five uh, question? I think a lot of the audience will like this question, especially. Yes, I do want to move on to number five. I think we're, in discussing Macron, we're dangerously close to getting back into personality and motivation. And I don't want to spend our time there. So with number I, I five- agree. Wait, I, I'm sorry. I was going to say I agree with you, Andrew, but you can't ignore it either when somebody uh, does very uh, obvious and public uh, attacks on, on the Sturp team from somebody who's never even seen the, the cloth himself and challenged us on that. I, I think personalities, even though I agree with you, shouldn't enter into it. I think in the case of Macron, there was an, there was an agenda there. Yeah, and I'm, I'm satisfied with your answer. So I think all I was saying was, if I chase it any further, we're going to go far afield of that. I think, yeah, yeah, because I think we've got a lot more interesting conversation Absolutely. with the questions that Dale has laid out. So go number right five. Yeah, OK, thank you. So, Dale, you have done a good job here. And the next question is in two parts. I'll ask the first part. One of the we've discussed um, potentially positive and negative uh, aspects of, of evidence at this point. Um, but Barry, what do you think is the best positive evidence that the shroud is authentic? Well, that's a, a question. Believe it or not, I get that question a lot. And uh, I would love to be able to point to one thing and say, there it is. That's the smoking gun. The problem is it took me 17 years because it was an accumulation of a vast amount of evidence, not just one thing, but countless scores of things that have led me to accept this as authentic. Remember, I'm not a Christian. I don't have any Christian biases in favor of the shroud. And so for me to stand up and speak publicly the way I have over these last years um, is only because I have been thoroughly convinced by the data itself. So uh, the way I see it, uh, there's always going to be uh, skeptics. There's always going to be questions about this data. 
I personally believe that the science is what has convinced me there was no emotional attachment. I never had an emotional attachment to the Shroud, unlike I'm sure there were some team members, perhaps those that were evangelical or Catholic, that might have had a strong feeling in favor of the Shroud. If they did, they never allowed us to see that. They kept that private. So uh, so again, I'm, I'm supported, I believe, by the scientific data more than anything else. Okay, so part two. Oh, I'm sorry, Dale. Did you? No problem. Yeah, I was just going to say. Um, and so, in terms of linking it with the historical Jesus, because uh, I think that's what they're they're sort of getting at. Like, how how is it that you get it? Link it with the actual historical Jesus, as opposed to. Some sure. other I, yeah. yeah, no, right, because I've heard this a thousand times. Well, you know, they crucified thousands of people. Of course they did. And I'm sure that they scourged thousands of people and speared thousands of people and crucified thousands of people. But to our knowledge, only one man who proclaimed himself the king of the Jews was crowned with a cap or crown of thorns. And we have those bloodstains on the shroud that support that. So the way I see it, by the process of elimination, um, you can come down to, uh, the way I see it, there's really only one man that we know of that suffered a, a very extreme and severe set of tortures, and those are all forensically accurately documented on this piece of cloth. So the logical conclusion is to say, well, that might or might be or must be Jesus of Nazareth. Now, can we ever prove that scientifically? Absolutely not. Uh, somebody said, well, what if we had uh, DNA uh, from the shroud? Well, what about uh, Jesus's DNA? Do you have a, a profile of Jesus? Because DNA is a comparative analysis. If you don't have one, you can't compare it to anything else. So it's a question that cannot easily be answered even by DNA analysis. And then, of course, there's the issue of contamination. I'm a long-haired Jewish guy. My DNA is all over that cloth. Mm. So... How do you know you're not looking at my DNA instead of the man on the cloth? That cloth has been handled by thousands of people over its history. And as we found out in the last 10 years or so, we're constantly shedding our epithelial cells. And if I leaned over the shroud, which I did a thousand times in those five days, I've left my DNA all over it as well. So, so there are some tests that may not be applicable to the shroud. And DNA, I believe, is one of them. So uh, I'm not sure if I've answered the question or not. Yeah, yeah, no, I think I think I think you did actually. Um, what? And I'll, I'm just going to ask this one before you go to the follow up, Andrew. Sorry, because I promised no, no uh, one of our uh, one of our listeners, David R, that I would uh, throw this in here. So he sort of associated to that linking the shroud to the historical Jesus specifically. Uh, he's give, given a counter saying, yeah, but there's there's no mention of any shroud images in the Gospels or, or right. within the early church. So basically, you know, a simple question. What, why is that? If there was shroud images, why don't they talk about it for centuries? OK, I've got an answer. <laughs> and the answer is very simple, believe it or not. The answer is the Jews forbid any kind of depictions of God. Uh, an Orthodox Jew won't even write the word God. He will write G-D. So depictions of God are forbidden both by Jews and by uh, the Islamic faith, as we've seen in the news in the last decade or so. So the men who went in and re rescued the shroud could not come running out of the tomb going, look what we found, because it violated two Jewish laws to begin with. It contains blood, which must be buried with the body, 
And secondly, it bears an image on the cloth, which is forbidden by Jewish law. So they're not going to come rushing out. They would have had to hide it, or there were iconoclasts looking for any kind of Christian uh, artifacts to destroy. So they had to keep it hidden. The first evidence that we have of the existence of the shroud is a, 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 a painting, not a painting, but a fresco in the Domitia Catacombs in Rome, a depiction of Jesus with the beard and the split beard looking just like the face of the man of the shroud. And that's 285 AD approximately. So where was it for 250 years? Probably very well hidden because it would have been a violation, they would have, it would have been destroyed. And perhaps the people who had it would have been destroyed along with it. So there's a, a, a plausible reason in Jewish law why this thing had to be kept a secret. If it was revealed, it would have been destroyed. Excellent. So, yeah, so, sorry to interrupt with that. I wanted to make sure I got that in for David. But, uh, yeah, you can ask the follow-up, Andrew, for, for this. Okay. At some point, maybe we can circle back to the two Jewish laws that, that might have been broken by uh, depiction or by writing the word God, for instance. But you, that'll, well, we'll save do, it for you, well, well, if you have, I'll give you one challenge, if you have a challenge, because I think the skeptics would like it, but just, just one and then let Barry respond and then we'll move on to the thing. Okay. okay. I don't know if it's a challenge so much as this might clear up some of my own confusion. I'm not a Jew. I don't no Jewish tradition in any way at all. And, and so it seems to me that if we had a, an artifact uh, like, the, you know, like the Shroud of Turin, uh, if we presume it's authentic, we certainly had Jews uh, hand-copying the Torah, right? And, and so in those cases, they didn't, uh, they didn't write uh, Jehovah with J and a lot of dashes and H, for instance. So in some cases, it seems like it was permissible to write the word, uh, the, the word, you know, God's name, Jehovah or Yahweh or, or whatever. And surely if the shroud was authentic, it would be uh, of equal providence and it would be important uh, to recognize that in the same way that we would recognize some Holy Scripture. Well, you know, look, I'm not an authority on uh, first century Jewish uh, writings and customs, so I, I, I cannot speak from authority on that topic. I can just say this, that uh, throughout my life, uh, you know, knowing uh, the ultra-Orthodox through the Reformed uh, Jewish communities, um, some of those rules are broken. Some of them have been disregarded. Uh, the Reformed com uh, community can eat bacon if they want. They they don't follow the old dietary rules. So uh, so these things evolve over time. There's no doubt in my mind. Uh, I think that in within Scripture itself, within the Torah, I think there's a, a permitted. There is a word that can be used. Adonai, I believe it is. That, but again, I'm not an authority on this, so I'm not going to claim that I'm speaking with authority. I'm just giving you my perspective as someone who's born and raised in an Orthodox Jewish home. But, yeah, uh, that's, that's fair enough. I, like I said, I don't know anything about Jewish tradition at all, so listen, it's not a point of debate as much as just one, me one of the great, myself. One of the great things about being the editor of Shroud.com is I can pick up the phone or send an email to a real expert on any of these topics because they're all out there and I'm pretty well familiar with them all and get an answer from somebody that does have the expertise to be able to give a definitive answer rather than a tentative one like I just gave. So, so maybe, you know, if, 
if we get to in the future, maybe we can follow up on that. Like I said, again, it's more for my own education. But the second part of this question was actually one that I was really intrigued by. And that is there are complaints about the image that's on the shroud. So I know that you're familiar with these, Barry. Maybe the, the back of the head is 5% too large. The arms are too long. Oh, There's no uh, navel. So can, I, can I interrupt? So, sorry, we're, we're not there yet. That is coming up. Um, but we're, we're not doing anatomical inaccuracies. We're still on the dating part. So there are oh, did I, miss, uh, did I misread? My apologies. Yeah, like oh. we're going for historical inaccuracies. So people will complain about the cloth or, or how the shroud man looks, and they'll say, well, that can't be a, a first century Jew. He's got long hair or, or the, <laughs> the weed is too complex. That, but uh, the question you're coming up is, is coming up, I promise. But this is more history uh, inaccuracies. Sorry, I, uh, I obviously scrolled too far. So, Dale, you've got the question right in front of you. Maybe you can ask part two. Okay, so, sorry about that, Andy. So, so yeah, but, um, as as a counter, so you've provided your sort of reasons as to why you think it is uh, probably authentic, uh, dating back to the historical Jesus. Uh, some skeptics have countered that there are various historical inaccuracies uh, that it, it rules out a first century Jewish origin based on the cloth, or based on the shroud man, or you know how he was how he was buried according as illustrated on the shroud you know they they say in one way or another it's not consistent with jewish custom um and i yeah i just wanted you to sort of comment is there any validity to these types of claims and you know how would you respond to these types of counters well first of all you know look i i'm not an authority on first century jewish custom so i can't speak with any authority along those lines what i can say is this that look the the uh, questionable things in the historical record can be applied to just about any historical object, and you can find discrepancies in, in, in things of that nature. So I'm not sure that that's a, you know, a strong argument against it. But all I can say is this, that uh, without getting into the uh, uh, physicality of the image itself, the, the way I see it, the, the man of the shroud whether there's historical evidence or not. For example, somebody, one skeptic told me that the kind of cloth that was used, that herringbone weave, didn't exist in the first century. Well, the first evidence of a herringbone weave was 300 BC, so that's not correct. So one has to do your homework carefully and your research carefully before making these claims. And a lot of these claims are made based on opinion rather than research. And so uh, I can't agree with those. I believe that th there's plenty of evidence there to support that this is historically correct. It is consistent with what the Torah requires for someone to be buried in of high stature, pure, clean linen raiments. That's what it says. It doesn't say how it should be folded over the body. It doesn't tell you how to wrap the body. It just says that it must be pure, clean linen, and that's what the shroud was. So I don't see there's any inconsistencies historically, at least along those lines. Thanks. Okay, so I think we'll move on to this, the next question. And I hope you'll appreciate this because I tried to come up with something new for you. You said you enjoy uh, new questions that aren't usual. Um, sure. so, so, yeah, it's uh, a couple, just a couple points. So um, as you're aware, I, I'm a Christian, so I, I do... Uh, lean towards or believe that uh, there is some kind of supernatural explanation for the shroud. And I know that, you know, from our discussions, I can't prove that yet. Um, but just in the first place, 
Uh, let's pretend we could. Pretend we do do a, a STIRP2, and we we prove that it, it is formed from some kind of radiation from the a vanishing body or something like that to, to your satisfaction. And uh, in the first place, for you personally, would, would, that, would that be enough in and of itself? Would you convert to Christianity at that point if we could prove well, that it happened? Let, let me then let me just quickly tell you, I had a conversation with a monk at the Abbey in Richmond, Virginia in 1999, and I was telling him that a lot of my Christian friends were asking me to convert. And he looked at me and said, but you're one of the chosen people. What would you convert to? He hmm. says, Jews don't have to convert. They only have to accept. So with that in mind, I would say that if there were evidence that was scientific in nature that proved that then perhaps that I could, I might make that change. But I feel personally that I'm on this team, not in spite of being a Jew, but perhaps because of it, because I don't have a bias in favor of this. I didn't have an emotional attachment to the subject matter. Uh, I didn't know much about Jesus uh, other than, you know, he was Jewish. I knew that. <laughs> so uh, basically, you know, I personally think that, if that kind of evidence came out. But here's the other thing, and I'm going to say this because I say this frequently as well. We've only had one round of testing on this piece of cloth, yeah. and that was 40 years ago with 40-year-old technology. Our technology is so far advanced, it's orders of magnitude better today than it was then. Until another round of testing is performed, I am not yet willing to uh, set aside the possibility of a natural explanation for the shroud. Now, if another set of testing is performed and we don't get any closer to the answer, then I might then consider going to the supernatural. But remember, I was a member of a scientific team. I've already pointed out that they weren't a bunch of religious fanatics. So we were there to collect data, evaluate that data, and determine from that data whether this was a painting, an artwork, a photograph, a scorch, or something else. And the data shows that it's something else. Perfect. Okay. Uh, so, and this is the second aspect of this question, and this is this is uh, where I think it's going to be weird because I, as far as I know, I'm the only one um, who believes this, and I've gotten a lot of even uh, Gary Habermas. I, you know, I took some convincing for me to come across with him, but I, I'd just be interested in your thoughts. But let let's pretend. Okay, again, we we've proven it is supernatural um, in this way. How do you um, do? How but, do you prove supernatural? Uh, again, just I'm just saying. Pretend we prove okay, that it was caused by radiation um, from a body, and and that some people say it's supernatural. It's it's not about how we prove, but just say pretend we're convinced that it it is formed through this radiation. But pretend likewise we're convinced that it's medieval. Um, would that be? Could someone? Could someone still use? Would do you think that would make it? contradictory like they would say there's no way god could do a miracle uh you know create a mir miraculous image in the medieval ages it would have to go back to the historical jesus and my argument is that actually it doesn't even have to i, I don't even have to care about the care about the dating as long as i could somehow prove it's miraculous however you would do that um if i could do that that would be enough and and i grant that i'm coming up i'm sort of weird on this but i I was just interested in your take. You, you might say that's that's nuts, or uh, well, but yeah. You know, here's how I'm going to answer you. I'm going to tell you this: that 
the one thing that the STIRP team did was we characterized the physics and chemistry of the image on that piece of cloth. That's in the peer-reviewed articles that I've we've talked about earlier. Yeah. Um, so if we've characterized what's on that cloth, um, we have some knowledge base upon which to, to, to go from. And I don't personally think that um, our science can, you know, look, how, how do you answer a question about a miracle? Uh, what Can a miracle happen in modern days? Can it happen in medieval times? Or does it have to be in ancient times? I don't know the answer to that. So I, I don't know that I can address that specifically. I can just say this, is that if this thing is something, look, we live in the 21st century, the most image-oriented era of human history. Everybody has a camera with a computer attached to it in their pockets. Modern science has not been able to create an image with these same properties, and many have tried it. I have looked at probably every attempt in the last 40 years. No one's even come close. So I cannot, I, I said this recently, I'll say it to you guys now. If this was manufactured somehow by a medieval artist, then I believe in miracles. Excellent. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, thank, I'd, thank I'd like to step in. I'd like to step in here and exercise my producer's right to ask one question that is oh. not on the table. <laughs> so okay. I, I've been, for, I've been chomping it. at the bit for this one, um, and it's the only one I really care about. And then I'll go back to sleep. Um, and, and Harry, just before you, just so you know, I, I just wanted to get that sort of theological type question just to see how you respond. We will be going back to more science based questions after after this so, no, so don't no worry. Problem. yes no but problem. you see dale has uh, found my button because it's a theological question finally and that's great that's you're the asking, part that i care about <laughs> you're asking an old hippie photographer a theological question exactly That'll be <laughs> so uh i think it i think it requires some clarification i was kind of hoping it would be answered without me asking the question but uh i i don't know how many people who have followed this uh, Barry, know that you're not a Christian, but uh, you you are not a Christian, uh, dis Correct. despite your being the the foremost shroud expert. And Dale is a Christian, largely because of the shroud. And so, as as someone on the outside looking in, I am very curious if I were to accept everything that you say about the shroud. You're still not a Christian. I'm not a Christian. What part, where is the disconnect between you and Dale? In other words, what, what is it that Dale sees in a shroud that makes him a Christian that you don't see? Well, look, I, I'm not sure that I can give a really solid answer to that. I just know this, that um, I've spent a long time doing this. At the beginning, as I mentioned, I was skeptical and didn't even want to do it, said no. Um, and even after I did it, and I had all these materials at my disposal, and I had access to all the science and all the images and everything else, uh, with all that, um, I don't believe that I was on that team for any other reason uh, than, yeah, to make some photographs in 1978, but more, more importantly, to bring all this information to people like Dale, to whom this is important, all those years later, so that, because, look, I'll tell you the story of how it all began. I got a phone call from a friend who said, you know that shroud thing you're involved with? Well, it turns out that's just a, a photo made by Leonardo da Vinci. And I, I laughed. I thought my friend was joking with me. 
<clears throat> and he said, no, I'm serious. And my question to him was, where are you getting your information? And his answer was, well, my wife and I were checking out at the grocery store. All of a sudden, I realized <clears throat> I was very privileged to have access to all this data and that the Christian community, to whom this may well be very important, didn't read scientific journals. They didn't have any access to this information. And so that's what prompted me to build Shroud.com. <clears throat> For years, I asked myself, what the heck was I doing there? Why was I there? And the answer became clear to me years later. And the answer was simply this. I wasn't in that room for me. I was in that room for all those who couldn't be there, like Dale. And so my role is simply to be the man who observes <clears throat> and records and archives this information for those to whom it's very important. But at some point, you also have to be the man who believes or doesn't believe. And there's clearly something that you don't believe about the Shroud that Christians who do take it seriously do yeah, believe. The, and I'm, I'm trying to figure out what it, what is it you yeah, don't accept. But, see, the, the Shroud isn't uh, necessary for my faith. My, my faith is, is in God. That's the way I was raised. I was raised in an Orthodox Jewish home. My grandparents lived with us. My parents were from Poland. My grandparents were from Poland. Uh, I'm first generation here. So God was part of everything every day. And my being involved with the Shroud wasn't from a religious point of view. But I will say this, that years later, once I built the website, people started asking me a new question, pretty much the same question you just asked me, uh, David. And that is, well, what do you believe? Well, I didn't have an answer to that. I had walked away from my faith when I was 13 years old. I had to bar mitzvah and walked away, and that was it. Never looked back. I was in my 50s before I had to confront my own beliefs for the first time as an adult. And when I looked, I've been to churches and synagogues and cathedrals and places, never felt close to God in any of those places. But the day I sat down and looked within myself, I found that God had been there all along just waiting for me to acknowledge him. Now, remember, I'm raised in an Orthodox Jewish home. God's part of everything every day there, too. So, so it has had an impact on my faith, but not the way a Christian would. And look, uh, I believe I was on that team, like I said, not in spite of being a Jew, but because of it. Because who better than a Jewish guy with no emotional attachment or interest in the subject could become a spokesman for the science of the shroud, which is really what I've become. So I think that my job, look, I'm, I'm working on a book that tells the story of my kind of involvement with all this. And the name of the book is, This Was Not My Idea. That's the name of the book. There might be a, a subtitle that says, or how a Jewish man became an expert on the shroud of Turin, because I never intended to do this. <laughs> I never expected to do this. This was not my idea. I, I know I say that a lot, but it's true. If somebody had told me that, you know, 40 years down the road, you're going to be on radio and podcasts and television, and you're going to be have a website. Nobody even knew what a website was back then. Um, I would have laughed. I would have said, no way would I ever do that. So this isn't something that I kind of decided to do a long time ago. This evolved it evolved into a place where I realized that I had an obligation with all these materials that I've accumulated over the years, and that obligation was to make them available to those whom it matters to. So that's really my involvement, and so it's not about faith for me. Now, will I ever become a Christian? I don't know. Uh, if God speaks to me and says, do that, then maybe I will do that. But as it stands now, I believe I serve him by being exactly who I am. 
Okay. Yeah. I, no, I, I thank you, and I'm, I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and duck out again. I appreciate uh, your indulgence. Okay. Sure. Uh, and I'm just going to back up uh, Barry here because you know I, I wanted to just sort of get his opinion on those theological matters. But when I came to to Barry and in all our discussions, never did I. You know, David and Andrew will know what I'm talking about here, but, you know, I, I never went over my criteria for a G-belief authenticating event or, or, you know, my philosophical argument from sure. undue confusion. I, I was going to him because I wanted to know the science um, by someone who knew it. And then I took what Barry gave me and I, I put that into my own context. I used it. So, yeah, Barry did, did what God has put him here for. He's sharing the information and then, okay, that's up to you, Dale. Now... Now you know the science behind it. How do you use it? What what can you make of it? So, yeah, I, w- I wasn't going to Barry for philosophical or theological advice. I, w- I was with him for the what's the truth about the the scientific findings of the shroud and that sort of thing. So, yeah. Well, look, if if you're to look at the first page of shroud.com in that opening paragraph toward the end, there's a sentence that says something to the effect of that uh, given the facts, I believe you have to make up your own mind about this. And so the whole, I think, success of Shroud.com comes from the fact that I'm not pushing any theological theories. That's why scientists come there and people of faith, because what we try and do is remain neutral along those lines. Now, I have been very clear about my personal points of view on the Shroud. I don't hide that. I've come to accept it's authentic. If I hadn't gotten to that point, I doubt that I would have ever built that website. Mm-hmm. But I felt obligated because the data supports that conclusion that there are millions of people out there that should have access to that same data so they can make up their minds as well. Excellent. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Sorry. All right, Andrew, can- so I'll, I'll turn it over to you for question seven. So going back to more on the science aspect. Okay, let me let me ask one final question on six. Um, Barry, do you agree with the following? After 17 months of planning and 62 pages of rigorous scientific methodology, three labs testing the shroud, none of that, after all of the scientific investigation we could do, none of that gets us to a supernatural origin. Yeah, I I wouldn't argue with you on that. Um, I... As I said, um, I'm not ready to accept a supernatural answer when it's only had one examination 40 years ago. If sure. we could if we could apply some 21st century technologies and we still can't answer some of those questions, well, that might then lead me in a different direction. But as it stands now, I'm not ready to set aside the possibility of some form of natural occurrence. Now, What's a natural occurrence? I mean, uh, is resurrection a natural occurrence? I have to point out that resurrection's right out of the Old Testament. The Jews invented that. So so I, <laughs> yeah, I, ha- yeah, I have enough. to take some blame on that one myself, I guess. Uh, well, and, I and guess, look, you know, I don't know what a supernatural occurrence is either, to be honest. Yeah. I know radiation is natural. I yeah, worked in nuclear can. for a long time. Sure. I know radiation is natural. I don't know what is supernatural. Right. Well, remember, we we had a lot of radiation experts on our team. (laughs) Guys from Los Alamos and Sandia Labs are weapons guys, and radiation is something they take into consideration. Remember what Los Alamos is. That's where the first bomb was built. I know L.A. you know. Yeah. So so the way I see it, you know, uh, uh, 
a supernatural answer is always possible, I, I believe. Uh, it's just that it's something that I'm not well-versed enough in to give any kind of uh, sort of credible answers. I just know this, is that uh, I base my beliefs on what I can see in front of me and what is tangible. And we have an image on a piece of cloth that modern science cannot duplicate or replicate. And I've, like I say, I've looked at every effort that skeptics have made over the years. You can make something that looks like the shroud. My photographs are all over the internet, so you can use that as a reference. But when you look at the chemistry and physics of the results, it doesn't match the shroud at all. So you can't, just because something looks like it doesn't mean that it's the same. And we can't just use our eyes. That's why we do chemistry and physics. Yeah, and on, on that note, that's a perfect segue. So I, I, I think for our next question, because this, for, for the listeners, this is corresponding to my podcast four and five, where I, I sort of get into the scientific findings or, or what I call those minimal relevant features uh, about the shroud. So, so Andrew, did you want to ask number seven and start getting into that? I think we should. Um, now, if you'd like to read it, you can, because I'm just walking back to my computer and opening the screen. I've uh, been walking around as we were talking. So okay. if you want to ask, that's perfect. Sure. So, so, so Barry, then, um, when you took part in STIRP, uh, you, you've already alluded to some of the, the findings that you've made, but um, would you mind just sort of um, explaining what, what were some of the main features that were discovered scientifically back in... Uh, as a result of STIRP, uh, specifically pertaining to the body images on the shroud. Sure. Uh, and and there's the other part. You So you already answered this. I was going to say, are, are there any other uh, images that are known to exist that compare to all of these uh, features? So you've already said no. Um, and then the, the other thing is, what sort of uh, naturalistic mechanism, what, what mechanisms in general, uh, either artistic or, na or natural, uh, do you think are possibilities that could explain these things? If well, that, that's easy. I, I, I haven't seen any uh, natural, artistic, uh, human-made uh, attempts or efforts that would uh, yield an image with these properties. Nobody's even come close. So I, it's, it's the reason I made that comment earlier about it being a miracle if somebody made this in medieval times because we can't make it today. So uh, I'm not sure if that's a good answer to your question or not, but um, what uh, what were some of the finding? Like, what are we what are we talking about? Like, what what is it? What are some of the features that? Well, we have an image. Maybe the most important feature is probably the most difficult one to describe uh, verbally. Uh, it's easy to show visually, uh, and that is that there is spatial or depth information encoded into the density, the lights and darks of the image on the shroud. That implies some kind of interaction between the cloth and the body, uh, because that kind of data cannot be put there by projection. You can't make a photographic image with that data encoded into it. Uh, photographers use light and shadow, highlight and shadow, to imply three dimensions but we're working in a two-dimensional medium. 
Yet the shroud image, when placed in an appropriate uh, instrument, whether it be a VP8 image analyzer, which is an antique by today's standards, or just modern computer technology, you can extract and see that there is the natural relief of a human form encoded into that image when it's extracted using uh, just a simple density extraction tool in, in a computer. So that in itself implies, in my mind, some interaction between the cloth and the body, not some artistic medium applied to the cloth by the hand of an artist. That's just not possible to encode that kind of information using uh, artistic means or even photographic means. So when you, I mean, that was the property of the image that got me hooked. That's what got me to say yes and get that free trip to Italy, you know? Yeah. Um, so uh, so I'm, I'm just not convinced that there's, there's, any mechanism that can make an image with these properties that we know of today. And if you look at the STIRP conclusions, which again are on shroud.com, uh, you can see that they determined it's not an artwork, it's not a painting of any kind, it's not a scorch, it's not a photograph, there's no silver on the shroud uh, that would imply some photographic methodology. Uh, none of those things apply. So where does that leave us? It leaves us with the question mark. The question is, well, how did this image form? And to this day, even with all the data stirp gathered, we don't have an answer for that. We still don't have an answer to that question. Now, when you consider where we are in history as far as science goes, the fact that we can't uh, come up with an answer for this image is a pretty good indication that it's unique. And I've never seen another image with these same properties. So as far as I can tell, it is a unique image on this planet. Uh, here's uh, one thing that I, I didn't write down, but it'll segue into the, the question that Andrew wanted to ask you before, but just as a, a positive case. So it seems like you're saying that whatever whatever it was that formed these images must have involved an actual human body, um, you know, and, and there have been findings uh, alleged by, you know, do, for, do forensic experts uh, agree that there's actually a human body somehow involved in this or absolutely as a matter of fact the blood stains on the shroud are dramatically different than the images the blood stains on the shroud came by direct contact blood doesn't fly and jump so the cloth laid on a body and the blood not only soaked into the cloth but all the way through it and you can see blood stains on the reverse side from the blood stains on the shroud now as far as forensics goes on our team was Dr. Robert Buckland. May he rest in peace. He's gone now. He's the guy they based the television program Quincy on back in the 70s. And he was a consultant on that program. He had over 25,000 autopsies under his belt. And Dr. Buckland believed that this image was of a scourged, crucified man, no doubt in his mind. Same with Dr. Frederick Zugaby, who was the medical examiner of Rockland County, New York, for 35 years, spent over 50 years studying the effects of crucifixion on a human body, and those guys were the real experts. He had over 25,000 autopsies himself. So these are men who are used to looking at these kinds of things and determining their credibility. Both of those experts who have studied the shroud all those years, probably 100 years combined, came to the conclusion that that cloth wrapped the body of a crucified man. I have no reason to doubt these experts because if those bloodstains weren't credible, they would have said so. If that image somehow weren't 
his, uh, weren't medically credible, they would have said so. These were not guys looking to prove something. They were observing and giving their conclusions based on the data. Excellent. Thank, thank you very much. And yeah, as I said, An Andrew, it's your turn. Now, this is your favorite question because some some shroud skeptics have sort of a counter to what you just said. So, so Andrew, take it away. Um, Dale, I'll let you read that one too. I'm again oh. away from my machine. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. So, so Barry, yeah. So, okay. I, I heard what you're saying, um, but many shroud skeptics ha have brought up to me, yeah, but there's so many anatomical inaccuracies. And it's, uh, I think one person compared it to a gibbon, which <laughs> is ridiculous. But, but yeah. you know, they point, they point to things like, um, you know, even Sterp found that there are some anatomical inaccuracies, like the absolutely, you know, long, elongated fingers, or there's no belly yeah, button. And you know what, though, um, those elongated fingers, if you look at it and do the measurements, and there's a paper that was done called an anthropometric study of the shroud that took the uh, tables used by anthropologists to identify different. Uh, uh, geographical sources of human beings on the planet determined based on those uh, uh, measurements that the man of the shroud was a Semitic male. What a surprise. I mean, I looked at it and looked like my grandfather, so I pretty much knew it was a Semitic male the first time I saw a photograph of the shroud. Mm -hmm. But the evidence supports that. The scientific evidence supports that. So why do we have some discrepancies? Well, first of all, let me point out the shroud is a woven piece of cloth that can change its shape and dimensions simply by the relative humidity in which it's stored by as much as a few centimeters. It's also easily stretched in either direction or in any direction because of the kind of weave that it is. So distortions, look, this isn't a photographic or a digital photograph that captures exactly what's in front of it. We don't know the mechanism that captured this image. And so we don't know, for that matter, when the cloth is unrolled, which they kept it rolled for centuries, they would unroll it and smooth it out and stretch it out and fasten it to a, a display table. Well, we found when we were doing that on the, we used magnets to hold in place on our steel table. When we smoothed it out and stretched it, we had to be very careful not to stretch it and distort the image. So which photographs are we looking at? The 1931 photographs, the, 19, the 1898 photographs, or the 1978 photographs? You'll find discrepancies between those three because of the way the shroud was laid out and stretched out to be smoothed out so that it could be photographed. So again... We're dealing with the limitations that we have of something being on a substrate that isn't a solid. It's not like it's on a piece of wood that doesn't change much. This is a piece of cloth. So some of these discrepancies creep in. The other thing is this. We're not absolutely certain to a scientific certainty exactly how that cloth wrapped that body. We have a pretty good idea. And so there's possibilities even there for errors to creep in. But the claim that, oh, because the fingers seem a little long or the face seems a little narrow, that that proves it's a fake, that's that's ludicrous in my opinion. For one thing, without getting too technical, there's the, when they manufactured a cloth in the ancient method, each hank of yarn was bleached individually and then put on the loom and woven into the cloth. You can look with the uh, transmitted light photos I made with light coming through the shroud. You can see every band running through that cloth of each batch of yarn. And many of these uh, artifacts come from the fact that 
each band took up the image slightly differently than the adjacent band. If you look at the face, and if you get an image of the face up on the screen, you can see bands running down on the uh, perimeter of each cheekbone. And that band runs the entire length of the shroud, and the image is more faint in that band so that you don't really see much of the face, giving the impression that the face is narrow. But it's not. The data is there. Depends on which photographs you're using and how manipulated those photographs are, whether or not you're going to see what's there or what's been manipulated to be there. But isn't it fair to isn't it fair to say that the image that you have in your mind that you think of as authentic, uh, as truly representing whoever was under the shroud at right. some point in history, is just one possibility in a range of possibilities. Sure. I, I, I would never speak in absolute terms, um, even though I have come to accept that this is most... Look, it, you know, um, my son, when he first saw the Shroud when he was 18 years old, we were in Turin, 1998. He looked at it and he leaned over to me. We were in the cathedral and he said, that's not a painting. Well, I was curious as to what made my 18-year-old at that time say that. And I asked him when we left the cathedral, I said, David, what made you say that? My son's named David, too, by the way. All right. Um, and, and he looked at me and he said, well, look, artists spend their entire lives trying to perfect their art so you don't need a bunch of scientists and 21st century technology to figure it out. Well, I listened to him and I thought about that and I thought, well, you know, that's a pretty amazing observation. He's right. Artists perfect their craft when they paint something you you know what it is you don't need a bunch of scientists and you know reversing the lights and darks of an image before you figure out what it looks like and so uh my belief is this is that what's on that cloth got there by some interaction between a cloth and the body who that man was we could never prove but the evidence points to jesus of nazareth and that's what i've come to accept Excellent. That's so, fair so, enough. I appreciate the uh, appreciate the honest answer. Yeah, and just so just before we move on to uh, number nine question, um, I'll, I'll hear from it because so this is a direct question. These specific inaccuracies were were asked by one of our listeners, Tyler B. Um, so uh, he says that the arms are too long uh, to be. So this is these are examples of an anatomical inaccuracies. That they would like you to address specifically so that uh, the arms are too long uh, there's no belly button or groin um, and there's no wounds uh, i'm assuming he means under the blood stains or something or around the blood stains or something there's there's no wounds there's just blood like as though someone painted a, a blood stain. No, no, absolutely that that last statement is incorrect there yeah. are wounds that are consistent with scourging with spearing and with the uh crucifixion nails in the feet and in the hands. Those wounds are absolute. They're there. So that last statement was not correct. Now, as far as the length of the arms, like I said, I've not done the study myself, but the anthropometric study did not find that is the case. And so my question would have to be to the, the skeptical gentleman, uh, what are your qualifications to, to make that judgment that the do they look too big, too long to you? Is that your basis for the claim? Because the measurements done on it do not show that they are too long. Same with the fingers. But I hear that a lot. And I hear that about the face is too narrow. What, but I've already explained that the banding 
of, uh, and you can see this if you look closely at some of these images, that in the dark band to the right of the face, there's image there. It's just when they contrast enhance the entire image, it darkens that section so much you don't see it. But it's there. And I've got, uh, I could send you guys an email eventually that shows you where I restored the brightness in that band by 15%. And boom, there's the rest of the face clearly visible. So what I'm saying is that if you haven't studied the image up close and personal and in depth, and you're only studying it from photographs, it depends on which set of photographs you're using because each photographer that photographed the shroud photographed it differently and lit it differently and spread it out and stretched it out differently. So in those cases, it's absolutely possible for discrepancies to creep in between different sets of photographs. So it just depends on which ones you're using. But I don't agree with that. The experts who have studied this, who are far more qualified than I am, do not agree that these claims about the arms being too long or the fingers too long are valid. And if the measurements show otherwise, then I have to go with the measurements. And one, just one last one, because uh, I want to make sure I get it all in for it. For, there's no belly button or groin. That's not. That's the last claim they make. Uh, what do you make well, of that? The, there's a groin. It's just the hands seem to be covering it. <laughs> okay. I mean, so I can't say there's no groin. It's behind the hands. So one would have to assume that since the rest of the body's intact, that that must be there too. As far as the belly button goes, I don't know why there's no visible belly button. Uh, some Christians have said because it was a virgin birth. I, I don't know that that's a fact or not. And we don't know that the belly button didn't get imaged for some other reasons. We don't understand the imaging mechanism. So we don't understand what might or might not have been imaged. So, uh, again, the lack of a belly button is not going to cause me to say, oh, the whole thing's a fake. That's, that's pretty limited when you've got all the historical and scientific evidence pointing in the opposite direction. Perfect. Okay, so so Andrew, you can ask question question nine. Then this is—he sort of answered this. This is about the blood stain specifically, but there is a new twist here. Right. So, Barry, have you seen the uh, the new questioning of the blood stains on the shroud? Yeah, total nonsense. Okay. Well, walk us through that from your view. Why? Well, why is it total nonsense? Well, first of all, you're talking about the guys who used a, man, a plastic mannequin and fake blood? Yeah, the BPA, the thing that yeah. came in July, yeah. Yeah, that's the one you're talking about, right? Yeah. Yeah. Now, do you think that the skin of a plastic mannequin has any consistency with the skin of a man who was in hypovolemic shock, who had been beaten and scourged and given no water and tortured for 24 hours? Do you think that there'll be the no. same results on his skin as there would be on a plastic mannequin in a laboratory with fake blood? Well, I think it might be hard if I'm if I'm being true to my skeptical nature. I think it might be hard to take someone who has been beaten, scourged, starved, and uh, deprived of water for any amount of time to show anatomical resemblance to an exact specific subrace of human beings, and for that image to be recorded on a piece of cloth two thousand years ago and still be representative of that person. Uh, today. So I don't know about plastic mannequins and I don't know exactly what the methodology was, but if well, I'm it, being fair to your question, 
I have to apply it both ways. Sure. No, I understand that, Andrew. But my suggestion is, since we have a link to that paper on Shroud.com, maybe you should go look at what these guys did. And at the end of that, see how good you feel or satisfied you feel about the, the conclusions that they've drawn based on methodologies that have nothing really to do with what was going sure. on with the man in the shroud. And that's sure. why I said total nonsense, because you cannot simulate with fake blood and a plastic skinned mannequin uh, what might have happened in a first century tomb. There's just no parallels. Yeah. And ju well, just just for the list, sorry, I'll let you go on, Andrew, but ju just for the listeners. So that uh, that paper that and uh, that Barry mentioned on his website, I did provide the link to that in, in the sources. I think it's in part five where we talk about the blood states. So I, yeah. I provided both their uh, article and the some of some counter sources so if anyone's interested well, you can look it up so sorry yeah. go ahead, i also want to point something out to you in all fairness andrew uh one of the authors garla skelly of that paper is an avowed skeptic more power to him and used my photographs as a reference made a simulated shroud that was nothing like the actual shroud and he's funded by an atheist group. So he's been very proud of that. And the only reason I bring it up is because he brags about that. He thinks that that's a qualification. So I'm just pointing that out. He's one of sure. the authors of that paper. That sure. paper used a methodology that absolutely had no parallels to what's on that cloth. And, and that's why, even though we made a link to it, because our goal is to present all the evidence and allow people to make up their own minds, and I do not write reviews or challenge the articles we link to. I allow others to do that. I try and remain neutral and not take a position. But when it comes to that one, it was so far off the mark that it just can't be taken seriously. That's all. It's just not yeah. good science. So I appreciate the open-handedness uh, of Shroud.com. Uh, of shroud I appreciate that you're not taking a position and that you are uh, including things that might easily be considered junk science on both sides. I think that's uh, the, the junk right science. I, I would agree with that terminology. Junk science, absolutely. That's yeah. yeah, it. Uh, fake news. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do think hey, that. Let, sorry, me, let me just throw something in real quick. Shroud is a fake makes a much better headline than the science that proves it's not. That's why every time something like this pops up, Boom, it gets 350 media outlets, uh, you know, roaring. And we, we published a bunch of links to some of these articles in our last update, so you can go check them out. So I'm not, again, I'm, I'm showing people what the media is saying, and then I'm showing them challenges to that based on real science. So uh, that's, that's mainly been our goal from the beginning, is to give people the opportunity to study the evidence and then decide. Sure. And, and... But uh, no matter how much longer this this conversation goes, I'll say I appreciate the fact that we were able to have the conversation and that you were very open about where you thought the problems were uh, sure. and, and where you thought they weren't. So, yeah, we, we don't have all the answers. I don't think that we have a definitive answer. In the end, I always tell people that um, Sterp went there to determine how the image was formed. We could not answer that single question. We can tell you what it's not. Not a painting, not a scorch, not a photograph, not a rubbing. But we have no idea of what mechanism can make an image with those chemical and physical properties. And this is from real hard science. So, uh, look, 
most of the skeptics, particularly those that are the most vocal, have never even seen the Shroud of Turin. Remember that our data was collected from that shroud with instruments pointing directly at the cloth. That's real data taken from the shroud, not uh, extrapolated from somebody's book or blog or maybe even a, a, a radio show or something. <laughs> sure, sure. Perfect. Uh, so, yeah, I think I think our um, th this question is, is basically related to Walter Macron. I, I promised you that that was coming up, and I, I know you. Yeah, already... no problem. Sorry, no problem. Go right ahead. Yeah. Uh, so you've already kind of you've already answered this, really. But I, I was just gonna say, you know, what well, what do you make of uh, Walter Macron's findings? He he claimed to find an iron. Iron oxide pigment and red vermilion pigments on the on the shroud, and he claimed, "Oh, it's it's proved that the shroud images were painted and composed of this uh, this these types of uh, pigments." There, so well, um, uh, anything, yeah, anything else you'd like to add other yeah. than what you've said? My already? my answer would be this: I don't know if Walter would have had that opinion had he been there and actually seen the actual shroud up close and personal, like we did. Uh, he might not have drawn that conclusion had he ever seen the shroud. All he saw were tapes lifted from the surface of the cloth. That's all. He never saw the, the shroud itself. And so, uh, nor did he ever take any measurements from the shroud itself, nor did he use any spectral or chemical analysis on the particles he found. He only used white light and polarized light microscopy. That's in his own words. That's what he did. So based on that, I'm sorry, but the instruments, I think, are a little more reliable than my eyeballs or even Walter McCrone's eyeballs. And look, we found and we characterized particles of pigment on the cloth. I mentioned it earlier. If you took them all and put them in one pile, you'd still need a microscope to see them. That's how minor it was. It had nothing to do with the image because there would be certainly more particles in an image area than in a non-image area if the image had those were made by those particles. It's not. The science is there. And in those peer-reviewed papers that I recently published, you'll find that data. Excellent. Perfect. So, yeah, that, that's uh, that's everything from my list of questions. Uh, just before we, before we uh, give it over to Barry for any final comments, Andrew, did, did you have any remaining questions or any loose threads that you, you would like to just end the show off by asking and getting Barry's take on? No, but I think I will end on the note of strongest agreement throughout this conversation. And that is, if the shroud cries out for anything at all, it cries out for further scientific testing because we don't have the answer. I totally agree with you. As a matter of fact, um, I would say that just about every living Shroud scholar that I know feels exactly as you do, Andrew. So uh, I think that we're not going to get a true answer to the question based on the data that we have now. We need more data. And until then, I think it's going to remain a mystery. Yeah. Barry, thank you. You're a gentleman. I appreciate the uh, appreciate the conversation. My pleasure, Andrew. Thank you. Excellent. And yeah, I'll I'll just end off by saying I I uh, agree 100% with you guys. I I think I've always said from the beginning that more the more data the better. I, I'm with you guys 100%. We, let's do a STIRP two, a STIRP three. Let's uh, whatever we need. Sorry. 
something. We got to do something, I think. But yeah. remember that once again, we're dealing with an object that is now legally owned by the living Pope. Yeah. And even the folks in Turin, who, if you go back to 2012, the president of the Turin Center for the International Study of the Shroud, or we call it the Centro, um, even he wrote an article talking about the, uh, doing future research on the Shroud. So even Turin agrees that that would really be necessary before perhaps getting answers, more answers to our questions. But that hasn't been permitted, and there's none of us, not even the folks in Turin, who can change that. It's definitely up now to one man, up to him. And like I say, he's got so much on his plate right now and the shroud is safe and sound. And, you know, they can pull it out every 10 years or so and a couple of million people will come and see it. And that's why I made that statement earlier that perhaps it serves them best by remaining a mystery. I, I don't know. I can't speak for the Pope. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, very good. All right. Well, I, I enjoyed this. I, I hope that uh, both Barry and, and Andrew, I think Andrew said he enjoyed it. So uh, hopefully you enjoyed yourself as well, Barry. I did. It's a real pleasure. And I appreciate the quality of the questions. And I appreciate the attitude of the questioners. I did not feel like I was uh, at the Inquisition. <laughs> I, I, I've done a few with skeptics where like they double and triple teamed me. Yeah. Hey, we'll do better next time. Hey, but look, (laughs) not to worry, guys, because I'm up for the task. Excellent. I I love that attitude on on your end as well. And yeah, I I have to admit, Andrew and uh, David, because David's usually my normal uh, co-host when we when we duke it out and do our debates on our our main show or whatever. And yeah, they're they're both gentlemen. They both uh, in general try their best to take seriously. whatever topic we're discussing and, and, you know, try to get to the bottom of the truth. We're, we're in this together. We're on the same team. And I want to know what the truth is, just like all of us. And look, and that's been reflected in the questions and the respect shown for the subject matter. And that's all I ask. Look, it may not be significant for my faith, but it is significant for the faith of about a billion other people out there. So I always try and remind myself of that, that I'm not talking about just something I was involved in, but something that's meaningful to so many others. It's one of the great things about the work I've been given to do in building that website is uh, it creates a legacy, something that will last beyond me. And it creates a place where people of faith and people of science can come without being bombarded in any direction. Here's the evidence you decide. Excellent. All right. Well, yeah, uh, just end off. Thank you so much, everyone, for for listening in. I hope you uh, enjoyed uh, this uh, interview, this special interview we're doing with Barry Schwartz. Um, As I said, he's been helpful, very helpful to me personally. I know I've I've referenced him and and his work uh, a lot during my Shroud series. Um, So please uh, check out, go to shroud.com, check out what he has to offer. There's a lot of good stuff out there. Uh, It's not all from one side, as uh, Barry's made sure sure to mention. So, you know, get a balanced perspective, see what he has to offer. So have a good week, everyone. Uh, Say goodbye, everybody. Goodbye, everybody. (laughs) Goodbye, everybody. All right. Take care.